Good morning. It's good to be back with you. For those who don't know, I spent the past week in, uh, in Lisbon, in Portugal. Um, what was I doing there? We, uh, as a church, support an organization called Editora Fiel. Editora, you can guess the word, editor, publisher, Fiel, faithful. And it is a ministry that serves in the Portuguese-speaking world. So obviously that includes Portugal. It also includes Brazil, uh, Mozambique, Angola, Guinea-Bissau, Cabo Verde. Uh, Portuguese is a widely spoken language. And um, Editora Fiel basically, I mean, the ministry is twofold. It began in the 90s. It's very simple. Number one... Uh, they translate uh, an incredible number of books, theological works, solid, good theological works. Uh, many of them we have right there in our own resource center. They translate these works into Portuguese, print them, distribute them, and um, the result has been tremendous. Uh, the impact upon the church, especially in Brazil, has been incalculable. Uh, the second thing they do is they have what is known as an adopt a pastor program, where an individual or a local church can do just that, adopt a pastor, which uh, basically means a monthly or annual financial gift, which gets in the hands of that pastor, I think it's about 15 or 20 books, and also pays for that pastor to attend an annual conference. And so the past week, I was attending the conference in Lisbon. Uh, they invited me to go because our church has supported uh, them, Editora Fiel, for quite a few years now. We have also adopted several pastors in Brazil. As a matter of fact, either later today or tomorrow, you will receive another email from one of those pastors updating you on his work, his ministry, and undoubtedly thanking you for your ongoing support, and his appreciation for that. So an extremely important uh, ministry, uh, great impact, and a real thrill for me to be back in Portugal. If you didn't know, Allison and I were missionaries there for five years back in the 90s. And so it was great to reconnect with some friends, speak a little Portuguese, and eat what is called bacalhau, dried codfish which is one of my favorite dishes, actually. It sounds terrible, but it is actually quite delightful. I also met up with George and Orchidia Adrião. And you're asking yourself, who are they? On your insert, they're there on the back. We support them as a church. We have done now for maybe four or five years. They send their greetings. They apologize. They don't know English. And so communication with them has not always been easy, especially for those care groups uh, who have assumed responsibility for them as their missionaries, but they wanted to make sure I conveyed to us as a church, GCC, their heartfelt uh, gratitude for our monthly support. I think we send them three or $400 maybe a month, and it actually covers the rent for one of their churches. They minister in Lisbon, downtown Lisbon. If you can picture in your mind's eye sort of that typical... Uh, medieval, southern European city, castle on the hill, 
Uh, that's Lisbon. And they're right in, in what is known as the Baixa, the core of the city. And they have two churches, uh, one on the east side, one on the west side. And they gather in their church on the east side on Sunday morning. They gather in their church on the west side Sunday afternoon. And our monthly contribution basically pays the rent for the gathering in a little place called Olerias in the eastern part of, uh, of Lisbon. They have maybe 40 or 50 members. The other work maybe has 20, 25. Uh, but they wanted me to make sure I gave you their greetings and shared with you again their heartfelt thanks for, uh, for the church's uh, ongoing support. Uh, difficult, difficult place, Lisbon. You have on the one hand um, the Roman Catholic influence, it is not what it was at one time, but it is obviously still tr uh, has tremendous influence and a tremendous hold on a certain segment of the population, especially the older uh, part of the population, whereas the younger generation is now very secular, has basically imbibed a naturalist worldview. And so you have these two prevalent cultures in a city like Lisbon and it certainly makes the proclamation of the gospel uh, difficult. But uh, the Lord is building his kingdom. The Lord is sending his kingdom. And so uh, we should continue as a church to join with George and Orchidia in praying for the spread of the gospel um, in that land. I hope to go back in two years. They've invited me to go and speak at this conference two years from now. So that'll be a real treat. Should the Lord tarry. That's a good phrase we don't often use anymore. Should the Lord tarry. Uh, I hope to go back there for this conference a couple of years from now and develop uh, our partnership uh, again through Editora Fiel. But great to be back with you. Uh, I invite you to turn with me now in God's Word to the book of Luke, chapter 4. Luke, chapter 4. We are going to memorize, I think, maybe seven or eight verses. We began this morning with two verses. We're going to memorize a section over the next three months, and this section, more or less, will constitute our focus as we study God's Word together. Uh, why are we turning to Luke 4? Why are we going to focus, hone in, on these specific verses or group of verses, this section in the chapter? There are a couple of chief reasons. Uh, in one way, it certainly follows nicely, our brief series in the book of Nahum. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, we made our way through that short book, and we emphasized the fact that the Lord is a jealous God. He is a universal judge, and he is a terrible avenger. The judgment of the Lord, the day of the Lord. In the midst of that book, there is a precious verse it states simply this, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. And so in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of this prospect of the terrible day of the Lord, a day of reckoning, uh, one has come. He has come upon the mountains, and he has issued, proclaimed, and announced good news. And he continues down to this day to preach and proclaim peace. How appropriate it is for us now to turn to the book of Luke and read of this one. 
And so what we're going to consider again in the next couple of months follows nicely, completes nicely uh, what we saw in the book of Nahum. But really, as I prepared for this series some months ago, it predated that brief series in Nahum. And there were two other reasons, key reasons why I gravitated to this section and why I believed and continue to believe uh, this is important for us. The first is polemical, and it is simply this. As we study these verses, and the reason, one of the chief reasons we are studying these verses is because we want to make sure we understand who Jesus is. And so it is polemical. There is a lot of confusion concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus in our day. For some, he is a sectarian. For others, he is a fanatic. Others, a philosopher, healer, teacher, rabbi, humanist, reformer, prophet, visionary, philanthropist, or in our days, some sort of social justice warrior. We have all of these views and perspectives on the Lord Jesus, and each ultimately detracts from who he really is and why he has come. And so often it is the case, sadly, that when we speak of Jesus, we often need to begin by deconstructing what people think they know about Jesus. And so I shared with you, I was in Portugal this last week. I arrived there Sunday night walked out of the airport into a taxi, gave him my address, and off we went. He started to make small talk. Who are you? Where are you from? Why are you here? And I shared with him that I was here for a conference. Um, thought, what words can I use that will give him some frame of reference? And I said, I'm here for a conference of evangelical churches. Immediately, off he went on a tangent. All you evangelicals want is money. Money, 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 money. So you can guess who he'd been listening to. Money, 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 money. And then he went on to correct my ecclesiology as he espoused the Roman Catholic Church. And then he went on to talk about Jesus, but a completely unbiblical Jesus. I had 10 minutes. 10 minutes was nowhere near enough to deconstruct the absolute fallacies surrounding this man's understanding of the Lord Jesus. The best I could do was mention to him a Baptist church, which I knew was in the area, and suggest perhaps some Sunday he might want to go along there and hear the word of God. How typical that is, not only in a place like Portugal, how typical that is in the United States of America. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? What claim does he hold upon your life? You interview a thousand different people asking them those questions, and you will receive hundreds of responses. Oh, the need to clarify definitively and biblically who Jesus is. And so in this brief series, we want to make sure we understand Jesus. The second reason isn't so polemical, it's more pastoral. We're doing this because we want to make sure we fix our eyes on Jesus. Uh, we were made for something eternal, uh, we have this inherent awareness that um, this world really can't satisfy it. There is a longing that transcends the finite, a yearning that transcends the material and the temporal. Uh, the right soulmate will not satisfy it, my friend. He won't. 
She won't. If you think that person will, you're a little delusional. They won't. The right job will not satisfy it. The right career, the right house, the right holiday, the right salary, whatever it is you think by looking to, if I just attain that, if that were just different, if that were true of me, then surely that longing for satisfaction would find some meaning, some significance. No, it is an endless, fruitless, pointless pursuit. Because, friend, you are wired for eternity. You're wired for eternity. You are wired for an incomprehensible God. You are wired and created for fellowship with a triune God. And you're like a little child playing with his toys in the sandbox, thinking, that these will provide and bring satisfaction. Oh, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus. He declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever drinks of me, believes in me, shall never thirst. John Ryland, an old Baptist preacher, 1700s, wrote the following. I set the Lord Jesus ever before me. I often think of my Redeemer, remembering what he did, remembering what he suffered for me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I want us to fix our eyes, spiritual eyes, the eyes of faith upon the Lord Jesus, and ensure that we are walking accordingly. The first reason is polemical. Yep, a little controversial. And the second reason is pastoral. So what text am I referring to? It begins in the 14th verse of Luke 4. Follow along now as I read it for us. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. 
And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed. But only Naaman, the Syrian, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Passing through their midst, he went away. That's our text for the next three months. We begin today way back, verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Interesting question. What was in the report? I say it's an interesting question. I don't think we can really answer the question. Uh, We aren't told. Undoubtedly, some news of his healing power. Undoubtedly, some account of the miracles that he had performed to this point. But here it is, a report going out, spreading through all the surrounding country. And what I want to do this morning is give you a report of the Lord Jesus. We don't know what was in this report. But I want to give you one based on what Luke has said to this point in his gospel narrative. So all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to this point, Luke has been laying a foundation. And based on that foundation, here we go. A report about Jesus. Nine things. And we are going to turn here, turn there, stay with me as we read, study, consult the Word of God. Here's the first thing in this report. Jesus comes. Jesus comes. Way back in chapter 1. Look with me at verse 35. And the angel answered her, that is Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High, it's the superlative in the Greek, the highest will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Note, please, the substance, the material. It is physical. It is Mary's. It is Mary's egg in Mary's womb. The substance, the material, it is real, it is physical. The substance is natural, but the actual conception is supernatural. It is the Spirit of the Most High who overshadows Mary. He works. It's a mystery. He works. Upon the substance in Mary's womb, thereby producing the nature, that is the human nature, body and soul of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please note, the Son of God at this moment did not turn into a man. It would be incorrect to say that. He did not turn into a man so that he lost his essential being. He assumed that human nature. He assumed that body and soul, whereby it now 
subsists in him. You can now take, if you were with us in the adult Sunday school class, you can now copy, cut, and paste that entire class and just drop it right here. There's where it is. Jesus, states the creeds, is of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God. He comes. That's the first thing that's in this report. Second thing is this. Jesus reigns. Go back to verse 32. He will be great against the words of the angel. It's prophetic. What's going to happen here? Speaking to Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. What's the context? The context is the Davidic covenant. We can go all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And when we go back and we read that portion of God's word, we discover that God enters into a covenant with David. And he makes several promises to David. The most pivotal, perhaps we could say, the most important, the most crucial was simply this. One of the sons of your body. One of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne. And his dominion will be eternal. By 586, the Davidic dynasty is a complete shambles. Within 200 years, a few hundred years of that prophecy, complete shambles. Uh, and so, what of God's covenant to David? What of God's promise to David that one of his physical descendants, one who would arise from his own body, his own lineage, what of this promise that I will put that one on your throne and he will reign forever? What happened to that promise? Nothing happened to that promise. When God made that promise, he had the same individual in view as when he had made this promise to Abraham. That in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. When he made that promise, he had the same individual in view when he promised Eve, what? Speaking to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, your seed, her seed. Who is the seed? Who is the one who would ultimately crush the head of the devil? Who is the one in whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed? Who is the one who has inherited all of the Davidic promises? He's come. His name is the Lord Jesus. And God has given him, in the language of verse 32, the throne of his father. And he reigns right now. And his reign began when he was coronated following his resurrection and his ascension. He sat down at the right hand of God and all things were put in subjection under his feet. And he now reigns and rules in the very midst of his enemies. And God's commandment to you is what? Kiss the son, lest he become angry. And he reigns right now his mediatorial kingdom. And it will continue until his return. When the spiritual kingdom will give way to the material. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth 
in which righteousness dwells. Oh, this is part of the report, my friend. Jesus reigns. Here's the third thing in the report. Jesus grows. Move with me into chapter 2. Look at verse 40. And the child, reference to Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Look with me now, same chapter, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Into the third chapter, verse 22, he has emerged from his baptismal waters. And the Holy Spirit, what happened? Descended on him, chapter 3, verse 22, in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Put it all together. He increased in stature, becoming strong, meaning what? He grew physically. He increased in wisdom. You get that in chapter 2, verse 40. Again, in chapter 2, verse 52, meaning he grew what? Intellectually. More on that in just a moment. And thirdly, he increased in what? Favor. It's in both those verses in chapter 2. 40 and 52, with man, that's true. I'm far more interested in this, that he grew in favor with God, meaning he grew what? Spiritually. He grows. He grows physically. He grows intellectually. He grows spiritually. The favor of God is upon him. That favor then finds its fullest expression as he emerges from the Jordan River, having been baptized, and the Father then declares, Favor, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He will repeat it later upon the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, hone in, give your fullest attention to this. The Father loves Jesus in two ways. He loves him unconditionally. That is the Father's love for his person. It never changes. He loves him conditionally, which is his love for his obedience. That as he grows, as he ages, as he obeys from infancy to childhood to his teenage years, a young man, he embarks on his ministry, he comes up out of the waters, an expression of his growth in the favor of God, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That favor continued to grow. That love continued to increase, and I submit it to you, it then found its fullest expression at Calvary's cross. It's a mystery. You're thinking to yourself, was not the wrath of God poured out upon the Lord Jesus at Calvary's cross? It most certainly was. But my friend, also never forget this. The father never loved his son as much as he did 
upon Calvary's cross. The Son himself declared it, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. A life of obedience with which the Father was well pleased. Oh, Jesus grows. Here's the fourth thing in this report I want you to get. Jesus reads. It builds on the third. It now hones in in particular on this increase in wisdom, this growth in understanding. Go back into chapter two. Recall this incident when as a young boy, there he is in the city of Jerusalem. After three days, verse 46 His parents have left. The caravan is returning home. After three days, though, searching for him, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Where did these answers come from? Where did this understanding come from? If you think it was all downloaded as he was lying there in the manger, you are mistaken. He did not possess this wisdom and understanding as he was lying in the manger. He was not able to speak perfect Aramaic, Hebrew, or Greek while lying there in the manger. He didn't know how to work as a carpenter or as a mason or anything else while lying there in the manger. He didn't know addition and subtraction mathematics while lying there in the manger. He most certainly did not possess perfect wisdom and understanding while lying in the manger. He increased in wisdom. How did he increase in wisdom? I don't doubt that on occasion the Spirit of God may have revealed truth directly to him. It's possible. Here's what I know with certainty. He grew in understanding and wisdom. They are amazed at his answers and his questions. Why? Because he immersed himself in the Word of God. He learned by reading. He learned by studying. He learned by memorizing the Scriptures. The Lord Jesus lived under the scriptures. He reads. Here's the fifth thing I want you to understand in this report. He prays. Chapter 3, verse 21, we're back at the baptism. And the Lord Jesus, as he's baptized, he's praying. See that in verse 21, when all the people were baptized. And when Jesus also had been baptized, the heavens don't immediately open. The spirit doesn't immediately descend. The voice is not immediately heard, but the Lord Jesus does what? He prays. He also prays according to chapter 6 before choosing his disciples. He prays in chapter 9 before revealing the truth concerning his death, burial, and resurrection. He prays again in chapter 9 at the moment of his transfiguration. He prays for Peter in chapter 22. He prays while in Gethsemane, also in chapter 22. He prays from the cross. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, we have a beautiful summation of his prayer life. It reads, he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. 
why would he withdraw to desolate places to pray? It is because the Lord Jesus knew better than anyone that prayer is the means God has appointed by which he stirs our faith and hope as we seek from him all that he has commanded and promised in the Bible. What specifically did the Lord Jesus pray? When you think of his prayer life, uh, what requests did he make? Here's where we're going to copy, cut, and paste again. We've gone through the first 17 Psalms, have we not? You copy everything we've looked at on those Psalms, and you now paste it and drop it right here. You want to know what the prayer life of the Lord Jesus looked like? Just read the book of Psalms, and you encounter his prayers. Here's the sixth thing in this report. Jesus obeys. Into the fourth chapter now. First verse. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, so the baptism is over, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Why? For 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil comes to him. You're well aware of the three temptations. You then have a summary statement in the 13th verse. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Oh, please do not miss what is stated back in those opening verses. Jesus is filled with whom? He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He enters into the wilderness. Why? He is led by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is filling him and leading him into the wilderness. Why? Because the Lord Jesus has an encounter waiting with the devil. The devil waiting to tempt him. Tempt him why? Because the Lord Jesus, while at Jordan, has heard from his own father, his father's expression and declaration of his favor in him. Not his unconditional love in his person, but his conditional love for his obedience, that this is my son with whom, in whom I am well pleased. This is my son who is living for me. This is my son who is living in subjection to my will. This is my son who has come not to do his own will, but to fulfill mine. This is my son who finds his greatest joy, greatest delight, greatest satisfaction in hearing my will, knowing my will, and obeying my will. Okay, let's test it. And off he goes into the wilderness. And the devil comes to him with those three temptations. You know the result. Through it all, the Lord Jesus stands firm, proving, demonstrating, declaring what? That yes, I am indeed the Father's beloved Son, in whom he is well pleased. Do not miss it, his obedience. Adam stood where? At the head of the old creation, the old humanity. Jesus stands where? Head of the new creation, a new humanity. Adam was in the garden, not Jesus. He was in the wilderness. Adam was satisfied, not Jesus. He was starving. He was hungry. 
Adam was surrounded by tame animals. He was naming them all. Jesus was surrounded by wild, savage animals. Adam had every advantage. Jesus had every disadvantage. Adam chose not to delight in God. Jesus chose to delight in God. Adam chose to ignore the Word of God. Jesus chose to cling to the Word of God. Adam disobeyed and failed miserably. Jesus obeyed and triumphed magnificently. Adam's transgression resulted in death and condemnation for all men. Jesus' one act of righteousness resulted in life and justification for all men. As Paul puts it, as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Friends, hear the statement and please hear it through to the end. We are saved by works. Never forget it. You're thinking, I've misspoken. I have not. We are saved by works. Christ's works. His obedience from beginning to end. This one who grew in favor with God. This one who heard the audible voice of God. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This one with whom the father is absolutely thrilled and thrilled with him as he hung in obedience upon Calvary's cross. And now as a filthy sinner, I made one with Jesus through faith. Guess what that does for my relationship with God? It now makes me what? Beloved in his sight. One in whom he is well pleased. Not because of my works, but because of the works of Jesus. Oh, he obeys. Here's the seventh truth in this report. He trusts. Stick with the temptation. And look at how he responds to the devil's first temptation. Verse 4, with scripture, Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Same thing, verse 8, and Jesus answered him, it is is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Third occasion, he does not deviate. The 12th verse, Jesus answered him, it is said, it is written. He's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy each time. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Oh, the father made wonderful promises to the son, the Lord Jesus. Uh, promises that transcend time, promises, promises that belong to the eternal covenant of redemption, promises that focused upon the Son's exaltation, glorification, and coronation, but promises that had not been fulfilled during his life. As a matter of fact, promises that would only be fulfilled after his gruesome, horrendous death upon Calvary's cross. How did the Lord Jesus live in the meantime? He walked by faith, my friend. He lived by faith. The devil comes to him. You're hungry, man. Forty days without eating. There's a stone. Just turn the thing into bread. 
Big deal. Move on. What's wrong with that? For the Lord Jesus to have done that would have been for the Lord Jesus to have questioned his father's care for him and provision for him. For the Lord Jesus to have entertained the devil's suggestion, temptation, would have been for Jesus to doubt the Father's goodness. No, the Lord Jesus is living by faith in those promises. Again, it is what we read of in the book of Psalms. The Lord Jesus, he, he sums it up perfectly, does he not there in the response to the first temptation? Man shall not live by bread alone. Luke doesn't complete the citation. Matthew does. The rest of the verse reads the following. Man shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus trusts in the word of God. He lives by the promises of God. Here's the eighth thing in this report. Jesus fulfilled. All the way back to the second chapter without too much elaboration. Look at the 22nd verse. And when the time came for their purification. So this is after the birth of the Lord Jesus. When the time came for their purification. According to the law of Moses. They brought him up to Jerusalem. To present him to the Lord. For as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, fast forward all the way down to verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Why do these seemingly throwaway statements according to the law of the Lord to fulfill the law of the Lord? Why are these seemingly throwaway, inconsequential, insignificant statements actually of such importance? Because of what Paul tells us in his first epistle to the Galatians. He was born under the law born under the law, that he might redeem, rescue, deliver those under the law. The law places two great duties upon man's neck. It is a yoke. It is an unbearable yoke. The first duty is this. You must obey it perfectly. You must fulfill everything. You must do everything. There is no margin for error. The second duty is this, uh, you have broken it, therefore you must suffer the consequences, which is death. The Lord Jesus born under the law, whereby he fulfilled both duties. He fulfilled it perfectly. He did everything, fulfilled every stipulation, born under the law, he fulfilled all righteousness. And not only that, then as he hung upon Calvary's cross, he bore the curse that we deserve for having broken that law. Oh, the Lord Jesus fulfills. And therefore it is in the Lord Jesus that we have redemption because he has paid both duties. 
And here's number nine. It falls on number eight. The ninth thing in this report. Jesus saves. All the way back to chapter one. All the way back to chapter one. Look at what Zechariah states in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. He has visited, note the language, and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation. Now into chapter 2. Listen to the testimony of the angels. Verse 10. The angel said to them, that is the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Good news. It's the gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Stay with me in chapter 2. Go all the way now to verse 29. It is Simeon as Mary appears in the temple with the infant Jesus. And what does Simeon declare in verse 29? Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. One more reference, verse 38, and coming up, it is now Anna, this aged woman who ministered in the temple, coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Oh, Jesus saves from his own lips. How does he save? Move now beyond our section all the way to the ninth chapter. Christ's testimony as it is revealed in verse 22. Chapter 9, verse 22. The Son of Man, he's referring to himself, speaking to his disciples, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. Second declaration, same chapter, verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. A third declaration. Go with me all the way to chapter 18. Again, he is speaking to his disciples, constituting the new Israel, Chapter 18, verse 31, taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked, shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus saves. There's an old hymn. It states it eloquently. It puts it beautifully. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in mine ear. 
the sweetest name on earth. It tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. It tells me of his precious blood, the sinner's perfect plea. And the name is Jesus. There is a report of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you love to hear his name? Do you love to sing its worth? Is it a name that is sweet to you? Is it a name that is precious to you? We're going to sing it in a few moments, and I encourage you to consider well this stanza and consider whether or not this is true of you, whether it is true of me. Here it is. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man, the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Our God in heaven above, we make this our simple prayer this day that we might indeed cherish your Son, the Lord Jesus, that he might be held in high estimation in both mind and heart, that truly he would be fair in our sight, lovely in our estimation, as we consider his person, his work, and that precious blood by which you have purchased us, redeeming us from our sin. O oh, our Lord, for the slow to hear and for the heart of heart, for the stubborn of will, we pray that this might be the day you remove the scales from their eyes, give them a vision of the Lord Jesus, impress upon them his loveliness, his willingness to save, and the full and final satisfaction that he has secured on behalf of sinners upon Calvary's cross. We ask it that your kingdom might come among us, that your name might be glorified in our midst. And we seek it from you in the name of names, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.